Better no survival in this era if we turn it on each other like a family reunited. They hate it when we together. Now let's talk about it. Listen to the teachers, let them tell you. You won't fax behind your questions, Dr. Rick. Give them that. Followed by wise words, introducing Dr. Michael Black. Many guests and activists every week leading by example. When there's problems, there's solutions. Together we are the answer. The teachers. Hello, everybody. Uh, Dr. Rick Wallace here. Uh, along with me, I have my partner in crime, uh, Dr. Michael Blanchard. Um, together, we are the teachers. Uh, we're going to move along quickly because we're a little stretched for time this morning, but we have with us author and relationship expert, uh, Alan Roger Curry, uh, who's also a frat brother of uh, Dr. Blanchard. And I think Doc was about to try to fill you in on the fact that he's been heavily recruiting me uh, for quite some time right now before we actually kicked in the intro. Uh, but uh, uh, Doc, you know, we've had a bunch of conversations about this relationship thing and where I stand on it and uh, the years that I've put off into it and my approach to it. And, and we've had our conversations about Kevin Samuels and his approach to it. Um, and more importantly, how I believe that truth alone isn't justifiable. I think that approach is important if you're really truly looking for uh, effectiveness. You've got to watch how you bring a message. But we understand the difference between entertainment and true effective cons con consulting, counseling, and other things. Uh, I think that. Uh, uh, Brother Curry definitely has a unique view and approach to understanding the dynamic that we're in right now. Uh, and I, I wanna, I'm going to let you introduce him and bring him into this. But, man, I think everybody needs to check out this, this whole man. I'm just trying to get the whole red pill, blue pill thing down. This brother done brought in a black pill and a purple pill. And now I'm like, wait a minute, man, I can't take no more pills. But when you really look at the concepts and the philosophies and understanding people. I think it's important uh, that no matter where you stand on this, that you have an understanding that there are different types of people and different types of people are viewing things differently. And you're trying to mesh something and make it happen. Uh, and so we're going to talk about all that, but you go ahead and bring him in and then uh, I'll come in and I'll talk to you. Uh, you know, I'll bring in my questions when I can. So it's on you now, Doc. Yeah, so I've, I've known Alan for, what, 36 years now. He actually uh, brought me into Cap Alpha Psi back in the fall of 1985. So I've known this brother for years. And uh, I guess it was around 2013 
he and I actually had a conversation about what he actually did, you know, and it was um, surprising to me um, that, that someone would need a dating coach, but, and that there was actually a market uh, for those type of services. So he educated me uh, back in 2013 about it. And, um, and then when this subject came up, I, I actually saw a post about uh, what was going on between, you know, the, the entertainment side of it, uh, opposed to the, uh, the, the therapist and family, uh, uh, um, I guess you would say therapy, family therapy, mental health side of it, uh, dating coach side of it, you know, a difference between, you know, the, the, um, the education side of it and entertainment. And so I wanted to bring him on to, to talk about that. Um, and to talk about his book that was published back in 2006, uh, Mode One, uh, and, and it kind of influenced, had some influence with the movie Hitch and all of that. So, uh, Alan, if you would, just tell uh, our viewers a little bit about your upbringing. You're, you're from Gary, Indiana. Uh, give them a little uh, history of, of where you grew up and uh, maybe take them through Indiana University and then uh, leading up to you writing the, the book, uh, mode one that you published in 2006. Sure. Uh, well, first I want to say thank you to you distinguished gentlemen for having me as a guest. It's funny on a quick side note, I thought I wasn't familiar with Dr. Wallace, but if you remember around the time that, uh, Dr. Blanchard and I's frat brother, his name was Kevin Bo Battles got yes. murdered in Texas. Yeah. You guys had a, at least two or three conversations about it. And I remember tuning in to one. And that's when I first became familiar with you, Dr. Wallace. And I right. appreciated the commentary you expressed regarding that. Uh, that was a sad loss of our fraternity brother. Right. Um, but yeah, I was. I grew up in uh, Gary, Indiana, born and raised. My father was actually, his claim to fame, he was one of the first two African-American graduates of the Indiana University Optometry School wow. in Bloomington. And so he had established himself on the campus. And so when I pledged, he, he was also uh, an alpha chapter, uh, new. So when I pledged, I was considered a legacy. I actually had an older cousin too that pledged in Bloomington. And, um, but yeah, uh, IU was a great experience. Technically, IU was when my Mo One philosophy first got started. Um, but I never thought that it would end up with me having a career as a book author and dating coach. But to give a, a, a little excerpt of my backstory, what it was was one time I was having a conversation with three members of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. And they asked me, like Harley, could they pick my brain? And I said, sure, go ahead. And their complaint at the time was, I think this was spring of 84. And they asked me, Alan, why do men go as far as to give you the misleading impression that they want to be your next long-term boyfriend and, you know, basically have a long-term emotionally profound relationship with you? But then when you have sex with them two times, five times, 10 times, they just, 
they, I don't think they said the term ghost, but I'll say ghost. They said, didn't they just go <laughs> ghost on you? And I said, oh, that's easy. They wanted casual sex. Their objective was really casual sex, but then they didn't have the confidence and courage to just straightforwardly tell you that. Yeah. And they said, well, why not? And I was like, you know, they just didn't. And they, they, they basically went on to argue. They said, well, Alan Tinley, you, women get into casual sex too. And so we would much prefer if men, if that's all they want, like a one night stand weekend fling or something similar, to just straightforwardly tell us that. And so first I kind of teased them about being whiners and complainers. But then a couple of days later, I found myself asking a few of the other noops in the front house, kind of informally. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, sure. I said, if you meet a woman that you know, you want nothing more than casual sex. Do you tell them that straightforwardly or do you kind of try to BS them? And almost all of them, 19 out of 20 guys basically was like, come on. They was like, they run game. AC. They said, AC, man, come on, man. You can't just straightforwardly tell a woman that all you want from her is casual sex. You, you asking to be rejected, if not flat out cursed <laughs> out or whatever. And I, I was basically like, no, I disagree with that. So then I start being real straightforward like that. Like anytime I interacted with a woman, I knew I didn't want her to be, you know, my long-term girlfriend. I would let them know straightforward. I basically, in one way or another, tell them all I'm looking for is just totally non-monogamous, short-term sex. And some of the women would have somewhat of an adverse reaction to that. But then what, what I really noticed was that even some of the ones who initially, keyword initially, had an adverse reaction, a couple days later or a couple weeks later, they would basically end up saying, yeah, okay, I'm down. And uh, that's what I later on start calling mode one behavior or mode one verbal communication style is when you just upfront, specific, and straightforwardly honest about with women about whether or not you want long-term, short-term, monogamous, non-monogamous, and similar. And But that wasn't my focus back then. When I left IU, I actually did not graduate as a traditional student. I left IU, pursued a career as an actor. I did some stage acting. I did some local, regional, and national television commercials. Then I went back to school in 91 and got my bachelor's degree in economics with a minor in psychology and theater and drama. Then I did one year of the Kelly School of Business in Bloomington um, MBA program, but I didn't finish. I got an internship at New Line Cinema in Beverly Hills, and I just stayed out in Los Angeles for the next six and a half years. So for most of my 20s, and the vast majority of my 30s, I was pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. But I have an older brother named Steven who actually transferred down to Bloomington. And he's part of the backstory because at least a handful of my frat brothers, when they were running to him on campus, they said, oh, so you Alan's brother? And he said, yeah. They said, man, your brother's a trip. And he would say, you know, <laughs> what are you talking about? And then they would tell him about some because they had witnessed some of my straightforward approach. They say, hey, man, your brother got this style where he just tells women, like, straight up. Like, all he wants is casual sex from a man. And, and like, he, he got some kind of Jedi mind trick that they reciprocate that. 
And so he started asking me about it. This was during actually the year that uh, Dr. Blanchard pledged, the 85, 86 school years when he came down. And he said, so what's this I'm hearing? You got this ultra straightforward, even sometimes you use X-rated, triple X-rated language. I said, yeah, man, that's what I do. And I said, I've gotten some favorable results. And he was kind of a skeptic. But then we happened to go to this this Kroger's Dr. Blanche window. It's on third Avenue yeah, I know. in uh, Bloomington. And without getting into any specific or explicit details, you can say I, I used my mall one style with this woman, and we ended up intimately interacting fairly quickly. And my brother was an eyewitness to it. So that's when he became a believer. He was like, basically like, whoa, whoa. So this really works. You can just talk to a woman and say what's really on your mind and get her to respond. I was like, yeah. And he was the first one who suggested, he said, oh, bro, you need to put this on paper. If you get results like what I just witnessed, you need to put this on paper. And I was kind of like, eh. It just wasn't important to me at the time. Again, I was trying to do my thing in the entertainment industry. But over the years, he kept bringing it back up. Now, fast forward to I was in Los Angeles, again, trying to pursue a career. Uh, I did some acting. I actually did stand-up comedy for about 15 months in 89 and 90. Uh, then I turned to screenwriting. But I ended up coming back to the Midwest because my father had a heart attack. And my mother was falling apart. And uh, so I came back uh, home. And then that's when it really got started. When I left Los Angeles to come back home, me and my brother were both looking for ideally a home-based business where we wouldn't be away from my mom for eight hours a day. And my brother kept saying, dude, that mold one philosophy you got, you need to do something with that. And again, I was kind of like, eh. He said, no, really. And then without making the story longer, um, now, I, I first published an ebook in in '99. Then I published my first paperback in 2006, and it kind of took off. I started getting emails from guys all over the world, not just here in the United States. I started getting emails from guys from Europe, Mexico, Brazil, saying they needed help. You know, with their overall social skills, conversation skills, and then the movie Hitch came out. In 2005, that's really when my brother amped it up. He was like, bro, that's you. He said, you need to become some variation of a real-life hitch, man, because you've already been having guys hitting you up for, like, advice and coaching. He said, man, you need to turn that into a career. And I didn't immediately at that time. I still had a 9-to-5 job. I started doing it, like, part-time, and I became a full-time dating coach in 2012. Mm. And, uh, so, okay. I may be jumping ahead, uh -huh. but the way that you define men based off of their philosophies, you break them down into basically four groups. Uh -huh. uh, those who have more of a probably naive, traditional sense about the dating pool, uh, they would be blue pill. Well, that's a little different. Some of it overlaps, but first I'll talk about my four modes of verbal communication, then I'll transition into 
what's known and what's there's a term called the manosphere. Okay. And the manosphere is who came up with these pills. So I'll touch on that second. First, in my book, I divide all verbal communication styles into generally four categories. I've already pretty much given the essence of mode one. Mode one is when you're very upfront, specific, and straightforwardly honest with women about, again, whether or not you want long-term sex, short-term sex, monogamous sex, non-monogamous sex, whatever else. Mode two is when a guy makes an effort to be overly polite. He's kind of cautious in his speech, and he's very vague and ambiguous about what type of sex. He might be honest with a woman about the fact that he wants to have sex with her, but he won't be as specifically honest as far as if he wants long-term, short-term, monogamous, non-monogamous. Mo three is a guy who's one of two things. Either guy who's just a flat-out coward, verbal coward. He's scared to approach women and initiate a conversation with them. So he might go to a party and look at a bunch of beautiful women and just stand and get some lost and wow. She's good looking. Wow. She's fine. Wow. But he's the whole night, he just stands against the wall. Or a Mo3 guy is just a guy who's just a blatant liar. Like, if he really wants casual sex, he'll lie to a woman and give it a misleading impression he wants a long term relationship, which is what those three AKAs were complaining about. Or he might have a girlfriend, but tell another woman he wants to have sex with, he's single. And that sort of thing. So he just tends to be very dishonest, disingenuous, misleading, and manipulative. Mo four is a guy who's kind of taking himself out today, saying he's angry. He feels like he's been rejected by too many women, manipulated by too many women. So he's one of those guys you might be shooting pool with, and he says, "Man, f all these blankety blanks out here, man. I don't want none of them. I ain't trying to date none of these women, man. They they all suck." You know, and he just he just has a lot of anger, misogynistic feelings. Now, transitioning into the there's four major pills that are discussed in the manosphere: blue pill, red pill, black pill, and purple pill. You were right on the money, Dr. Wallace, with blue pill. Blue pill is a guy who's a combination of very naive, very idealistic, and has a boatload of traditional value. He he wants relationships to be like they were, say, in the 1950s. And he thinks most women are these innocent, wholesome, sweet creatures who can almost do no wrong. And his behavior shows that. Then what happens, a lot of guys will transition from blue pill to red pill when, say, they go through a rough divorce. Mm. Or they get cheated on by a girl, ex-girlfriend or ex-former wife. Or a woman took them for all their money. Um, or they, they just observed that women are a bit more kinky and promiscuous than they thought they were. That's when a guy's considered being red pill aware. In other words, he's seen the realistic sides of women that he didn't necessarily know existed. So he's now more red pill aware. Then an extreme form of being red pill is black. Now, black pill, being black pill is almost similar to what I described about being mode four. When guys are black pill, they become totally anti-marriage, anti-long-term relationship. They 
Brian, 98 to 99% of things they say about women is negative, disparaging, pessimistic. And yeah, they, in worst case scenario, they, they're just flat out misogynist. They, they, they've always reached for point where they hate women. Mm-hmm. And then purple pill is considered somebody who started off blue pill, became red pill aware, but usually for commercial purposes, like he might be a relationship coach, he espouses a lot of blue pill attitudes, even though everybody who really knows him knows he has a lot of red pill type awareness. So they call that type of guy purple pill. And so that's the essence of the pills. So, Alan, do you see any danger in in the current situation out there now? Um, Obviously, uh, well, let me phrase it this way. Do you see dating coaches as a profession? Well, now it is. Now, I have to say in full disclosure, uh, uh, like I heard you talking about like marriage and family therapy. I am not a credentialed therapist. Like I don't have a, a, a Ph.D., in uh, relationship psychology, probably the closest thing I have to somewhat of an academic-related credential, um, in 2009, I was working at IU Northwest, the satellite campus of Indiana University in Gary, Indiana. Yeah. And a woman happened to Google me and invited me to teach a class called Dating for 21st Century Singles at Indiana University Northwest. And, And she ended up telling me something that was very flattering. She said, I was the first person in the entire Indiana University system to teach a class that dealt with human sexuality and dating and relationships that was not in possession of a PhD. Because mm. all I had was my bachelor's in economics with a body in psychology, but they still approved me right. teaching this course. Um, but yeah, I would arguably say I was the first, uh, according to most guys in the manosphere, the first black dating coach that start offering like email consultations, Skype and telephone consultations, one-on-one face-to-face coaching sessions. And then just in the last, I'd say roughly five, six years, I start seeing all these other guys popping up. <laughs> and you could say on the positive end, maybe it resulted in the field growing, so to speak. But here's been my major issue, and this relates to my beef with one of our frat brothers. Right, right, right. Like the knowledge, wisdom, and insight I would provide to clients was based on my actual experiences with women over the years. Okay. But what you, you you had happening in the last five to six years is guys would say, pay attention to me. A lot of guys would be like a follower of mine, and they would learn that I was making six figures off of being a dating coach. And they say, whoa, I didn't know you could make that money just giving dating advice. So I don't have a problem with another guy becoming a dating coach as long as they're, to some degree, original and unique in their advice. But a lot of guys in blunt terms, just start ripping off my talking points. They start almost, in some cases, like literally word for word, which is plagiarism. They start like just ripping off contents of my books and calling themselves a dating coach. 
And the first people who noticed it was my followers, supporters, and clients. They were saying, they were writing notes saying, hey, Alan, there's this other dating coach named so-and-so. Man, he like copying all your stuff from your mold one book. Or I got another book called The Possibility of Sex. And I got another book called The Beta Male Revolution. And guys would just start copying my stuff. And the most notable person who did it in recent weeks, I'm going to say his name, Kevin Samuels. Right. He was using the title of my book called The Possibility of Sex in, in one of his live streams. And he went as far as to say, because he's familiar with me. We've had interaction. Right. Instead of just going ahead and saying, this is the title of a book of one of my frat brothers, Alan Roger Curry. Let me give him a shout out. He started off his live stream saying, I know the author of this book. <laughs> and he's my fraternity brother, but I don't feel obligated to give him what's known as proper credit attribution, which is what you're supposed to do to a published author. Give him, right. You know, right. proper credit. Right. He, he literally said, essentially, I'm not going to give him his proper credit attribution because I feel like not everything in his book is wholly original. I feel like it's some of the stuff is stuff people have talked about on the golf course or in the barbershop. So I'm not going to give him proper credit attribution. And I took offense to that. Right. And uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. So normally in, in academia, if you come up with a new theory or paradigm, then yeah, you, you typically give um, credit. Like mm -hmm. for me, student persistence, uh, a, a lady by the name of Regina Dale Almond, you know, she's highly published in that area and, and actually came up with a theory. Mm -hmm. um, in, in mode one, is there a particular type of theory that you developed in that? I'm just asking the question. Well, the, I would say the main concept that's original in mode one is simply my four modes of verbal communication. Okay. I came up with those four modes and that had not been discussed because prior to my book, most guys, when they talked about verbal communication, they either divided simply in honest versus dishonest verbal communication or direct versus indirect. Whereas I took direct and divided into two subcategories, which is mode one and mode four, and indirect and divided into two subcategories, which was mode three, uh, mode two and mode three. And what I basically argue is, in my book, my main argument is that you don't have to lie to women or mislead them or manipulate them in order to have long-term success with them or even short-term casual success with you can be you know just upfront and straightforwardly honest and uh so yeah you say that's my main premise my main argument um, i actually trademarked my four modes of verbal communication okay. so i do remember uh i remember jason black also giving you credit for uh describing alpha males and beta beta males on yeah, I was actually, now I didn't even, I always clarify, I didn't even fit, of course, you know, term alpha and beta have been around, right. but again, within but the your story, name comes up, your name comes up when people start talking about alpha and beta, beta males, your name frequently comes up out there. Yeah, well, I was going to say, among guys who are, say, dating coaches, I was actually the first one to use that, because before I came on the scene, which again was in summer 99, most guys, their delineation for men was either nice guys versus womanizers, gentlemen Pro versus bad boys. Professional versus blue collar. Yeah, exactly. Those are the way, yeah. Those type of things. But nobody was really using 
what what started me using it I happened in the I think early to mid nineties I was watching some special on I think either Animal Planet or Discovery Channel. And they were talking about mating rituals among various animal kingdoms. And in one portion they said, I think it was they were talking about some uh animal kingdom within the ape family. They said in this animal kingdom, some beta males, some of the male species known as beta males, never get to mate. And that was the first I remember. And I was like, wow. They said only the alphas get the mate. And at minimum, if they do get the mate, I don't remember the exact words, but in essence, they said the beta males only get the alpha males leftovers. And I was just like, wow, that's deep. Like some animals, they fight to the death over one of the, you know, the female species they like. They they like right. go at it until one person's dead. That was even deep. I was like, dang. So yeah. I, that's when I start incorporating alpha male beta. Now there is two hybrid categories I did uniquely come up with. Um, in one of my books, I divide a lot of guys into four archetypes, which is what I call total alpha male. He tends to be more promiscuous. And he shies away from monogamous relationships. Then I have, this was one of my unique terms. I came with alpha male with a few beta traits. And that essentially is a guy who kind of floats back and forth between long-term relationships and casual sex. He's really into wanting to have one special woman and a family. But say if he's in between long-term relationships, he's going to play the field. And So that's what I call alpha male with beta traits. Then I have what I call beta male. That's another unique archetype of mine is the beta male with a few alpha traits. The gist of that guy was he has to have a lot of money to pull top quality women. If he became, say, unemployed for three months, six months, his girl going to leave him because she want that cash. And then a total beta male is would represent guys like there's guys in society nowadays known as incels which is represents they're involuntarily celibate they just can't get laid either some is i don't know very physically unattractive about them that is more so usually their social skills are just severely underdeveloped and with the exception of hooking up with like a street prostitute or a call girl they can't connect with women sexually at all. And that would be a total betas. It's it's interesting. And, uh, you know, and we talk about the whole, uh, the dating coach uh, concept. Uh, and I find that interesting. And being uh, a person who's actually in the quote unquote uh, human behavior uh, field and literally work with uh, not only individuals, but couples in relationships have done it for quite a bit, uh, have two books specifically on the topic of relationships. And I'm always touching on it on any of my books because I see relationships as institutions mm -hmm. and certain things happen within the institutions. And I think that when we don't have a full grasp of these institutions, we underutilize them, we misuse them and we get frustrated with it. Um, and so, um, man, about 2000, I started to research because I had went through a divorce. I started to research mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, different forms of marriage, different types of marriage, different cultures, uh, the arranged marriage, the ancient marriage. And one of the first things that I discovered, uh, because I made up my mind, I wasn't going to get a divorce again, so I wasn't going to get married. Now, I am the person you described as the serial monogamous, but never alone. So when I go from a monogamous relationship until I meet that next woman that I look at and say, okay, this is my wife, I'm, I'm out there. You know, and that was me back then. I'm out there. I'm never alone. And I was the person that I never lied to a woman and said something that I thought she wanted to hear. I'm like straightforward. Hey, look, this is where I'm at right now. This is what's up. We can kick it, whatever. And we're going to have a bunch of fun. But I'm telling you right now, this is as far as I can go. Mm-hmm. So and, but, and so what I realized is now, now this is this is going to be crazy. I'm taking it somewhere. What I realized, and I put this in both books, is after interviewing all of these different people and looking at what long marriage, what 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 were some common factors in these very long relationships and what were common in breakups, a couple of things I discovered. Uh the first thing is I completely stopped believing in dating. Period. Because the concepts of dating and ideas is I'm gonna get to know you. And in getting to know you, I'm going to determine whether I want to spend time with you. There are a couple of fallacies to that in in me from a psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first one is the person you get to know is still not going to be the same person two years from now. True. So if there's not a level of understanding commitment, it doesn't matter how well you get to know a person. If you don't understand commitment and you're willing to move past feelings, it's going to be a point where you get to that it doesn't work Mm -hmm. because you're never going to always be on the same page. You're not going to be on the same People tend to not grow exactly at the same pace. I agree with so, that. So, so in other words, you got to have something that says when it ain't right, it still holds me here. Mm-hmm. And so with me, it was the belief in covenant. Now, you got to find somebody with the same principles and values, which, again, is important for marriage because marriage is the foundation of the family. Mm-hmm. And then the family is literally the, the institution in which we teach our children our values, our interests, and our principles, and we project them out into society to fulfill and carry on the generational idea of what our family holds dear. Well, if you see, it's, we, we talk a lot about black group economics and a bunch of other things. We're trying to get a bunch of people to understand that they never, ever embraced as children, never grew up in the household. And it's hard. Why? Because their values, they're hardwired with other behaviors that are not directly connected. The family is where you create those connections early in life. Well, the other part of that is the natural human engagement in social interactivity. Here it is. I can, and what I, I learned this through practice. So it initially, before I started to do the research on it, I learned it in practice. I can sit up and tell a, 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 a young lady, hey, look, this is where I'm at. I just got out of a long relationship. I'm not trying to get sick. You know, we can kick it. We can go to the movies. We can do it. We, you tell me how far you want to go. I'm not going to push you no further than you want to go. Because what I know is everything that I want, I'm going to have somebody that I can get it from without having to coerce anybody. Mm-hmm. So you tell me, you want to just be the movie chick? You could just be the movie chick. We good. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to be that person that comes over when I call and you know what's up, then that's what it is. But understand. Mm-hmm. But here's the problem. Let's call this casual dating mm-hmm. all right in a casual date there's no obligation i'm not dating you for the purpose of trying to see if i want to marry you i'm just dating you and if it gets somewhere it gets somewhere if not there's no no strings tied we are not in a you're not my fiance you're not my wife i'm mm-hmm. dating you here's the problem with that first date everybody goes on that the first date the second date 
that all depends how horrible the first date was, how good the first date. But there are some people that say, even if the date was horrible, he's so fine or she's so fine, I got to give him one more shot because they know where they're trying to get with that. Right? Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you something interesting, Dr. Wallace, that I get some degree of pushback on from the fellas in the manosphere. Starting with roughly the age of 22, up until I met my wife, I got married in July of 2020. Uh, you know, I've never, ever taken a woman out on a date for casual sex, ever. When, mm -hmm. when If I met a woman and I knew my objective was casual sex, I would just straightforwardly tell them that I wanted to have casual sex. And I would ultimately even either invite them to go on my place or allow them to invite me to come on. But I've never taken a woman out on a lunch date, movie date, dinner date. And a lot of guys, their pushback is, oh, man, even with casual sex, you got to take a woman out on two, three, four, no. or even sometimes five. I'm like, no, I've no. never I, I, I agree with you with that because I've had times and situations, and it's not something I'm, a pro I'm proud of now where I'm at and how I'm raising my daughters and and you know where I'm at with my wife and everything like that, but this is the reality of what we're talking about. I think it's important. There were times when you know, hey, I met somebody out, and that night we were somewhere doing, 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 doing. You know, having sex. Just hey, look, hey, man, I'm really feeling you right now. What's up? You know, I mean, just different times, and and a lot of it is confidence. A lot of it is presentation, and a lot of it is an understanding is that this idea that men have about women is that there are these guarded, protective. Uh, women that you got to convince to have sex, they probably want it more than we do. And you got to you got to understand that when you understand that, you just got to be what they want, and, and in the physical sense and in confidence, you know. But what, what I was getting at with the dating thing is, okay, after you go out on about three dates, I don't care how much you say, this is just casual, no strings attached. I blaze you, you blaze me, whatever. On whatever level you do it, if it's strictly sex, if it's sex in a movie, if it's whatever, however you're going to do it. After a while, there's this thing called emotional bonding that takes place. You don't even realize it's happening. You're getting connected to this person. Now, you may not, in your mind, you're saying, this just this dude I'm blazing, this just this, 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 this chick I'm blazing. But that's a connectivity. Now, what happens is because we don't grow at the same pace. Somebody's getting more connected than the other. And at some point, six months down the line, it grows old. And I've learned this from my connectivities. It would always happen. It's like I had to pay attention. Okay, now's the time I've got to stop it because if I let it go any further, it's going to be a problem. So what happens is he walks up to you and he goes, hey, look, man, it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. But right now I'm trying to move in a different direction. Hey, it's been good. Now, based on the agreement, she may or may say, you know what? I hate to see you go. But she's going to mourn that. That's going to be a period where she's going to have to recover from that. Now, it may be a week, maybe a month or whatever, but you're making these emotional connections that you leave a piece of you with someone when you leave and they, that you take a piece of them with you. And then you take this fragmented process and eventually you're going to want to start a relationship. And this only is about people who want to start relationships. You're going to go in there and you got to deal with it. I deal with the back end of it. People who did that for years and years and years and then got married, I have to help them sort that out and understand it. Because here's the other thing, and then I'll, I'll be done with, with the whole dating thing. Here's the other thing. When you're dating, let's say you're dating, but you're dating literally at some point thinking, I'm going to find the right person. Well, what tends to happen when you're dating is you find a person that feels this need, 
then eventually there's a person that feels that need. Say, I like to do this. I like to do this. I like to do this. And then you got this. You got the movie person. You got the person that's great eye candy that makes you look a million dollars when you take her out because she's a 10. You got all this stuff. Then you got the person that when it comes to the bedroom, she's killing it. So everything you need to make you feel satisfied is satisfied in all these people. There is not one person in the world can do all of them. So now when you get ready to start a relationship with one person, something's going to be missing. And now you feel like you're losing. Because now I used to have it all and now I've got to give up something. And in the process of that, are you giving everything you have to this relationship? Because psycholo- I mean, from an emotional perspective and a psychological perspective, you're believing that you're losing something. Well, on that point, that's one of the things I discussed in one of my books is that Without getting too lengthy, I basically say, see, before the 1960s, dating centered around both the man and the woman looking for what was known as the total package, (laughs) someone who brought a lot to the table. But then what happened, there was a lot of things. This is my mainly my book called The Beta Male Revolution. There's a chapter where I talk about the number one period that changed dating dynamics, at least in this country, if not worldwide, was that period between roughly 1960 and the early to mid-70s. First thing that happened, you had the introduction of the birth control pill. Then you had the second wave of feminism kicked into high gear. Then you had the free love movement, otherwise known as the sexual revolution. And then finally, you had the legalization of abortion. And what I say in that book is that what all four of those factors contributed to is the stigma for women associated with both premarital sex and uh, casual sex kind of significantly diminished, if not almost fully faded away. And so women start being more open to the idea of engaging in sex outside the context of marriage. And again, when I get too lengthy, to your point, what I said is that a lot of women became more niche-oriented. They got this man for this specific need, another man for this specific need, another man for this specific need, another man for this specific need. So they felt like, shoot, why do I need one guy when I can have five guys taking care of five different needs? And then a lot of them almost became reluctant to engage in long-term relationships, again, to your point, because they felt like, well, shoot, if I just go for this one guy, he might have three of the five needs uh, satisfied, but those other two needs are still just out there. And now you saying I got to give up those two guys who took care of those two needs that I want. And to a slightly less extent, the same thing happened with men. So yeah, that's very valid what you said about the, the, the specific niche needs that both men and women, particularly women, became comfortable with. And it's, yeah, it's negatively affected their enthusiasm towards committing themselves to a long-term monogamous relationship. So let me ask, let me ask you one, one, one other question. And I want to get your insight on this because like I said, I was like, man, this weekend is not going to be enough to talk about all the stuff that's, that's, that comes to this because uh, doc will tell you, I'm real big on marriage, but not in the naive sense. I'm about understanding that there has to be a means in which you empower our youth. And we think we we we've, we are finally coming to a sense of an understanding that the, the, the public school system can't educate our children. 
the, the, the biggest part of educating our youth actually is in the way we socialize them in the home and the way we connect and socialize with other people who think like us within the community. And that starts within the home. And there is masculine energy and feminine energy, not in the in the uh, popular way of explaining it, but in the true sense of the nature of the natural expression of manhood and, and womanhood. And as we get away from it, we have problems. But one of the things that blew my mind in my research uh, before I wrote When Your House Is Not a Home, which is the first book on marriage, it deals with marriage after the fact and conflict in the marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, the latest one is Merging Souls, Healing Hope and Restoration in Modern Marriage. But one thing I found out that totally blew my mind is that the shorter the courtship, the longer the marriage. Now, obviously, there's exceptions and everything like that. But the longer you talk about being in an engagement or we dated and all this here, uh, the shorter the relationship tends to be. In other words, there's only a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell. Yes. Okay. You, you Have you read Blink? No. Okay. Ma Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book about Blink and it's about human intuition. And we always talk about the woman's intuition, but we all born with it. That's this natural thing that happens when we encounter things that warns us about, we, we have the ability to read energy at a very high level. And the problem is because now women have a checklist when it specifically comes to men, but I'm talking about anything, but when it comes to men, women have a checklist. Men have this idea of what they want. So, and what happens is we override our intuition, but the book Blink is about uh, these tests that were run and they found out that <coughs> they tested a bunch of things. They tested, they uh, did a test where they had kids observe a college professor lecturing. And they had them do it in varying uh, uh, it, levels. One observed through the window of the classroom door. Uh, one observed by sitting through the whole meeting. One watched a 10-second clip on the video and everything like this here. And then they were asked to different, I mean, real specific questions that had nothing to do with the lecture, but about the professor. And the ones who peeked through the window, the one who had the 10-second clip, were way more accurate about it than the person who sit through the entire lecture. Because as you sit through the lecture, you start to listen to him intellectually expound and you start to develop an idea about him based solely on his intellectual, his uh, him being, uh, you know, his his intellectual prowess. And so it goes on relationships and everything else that uh, you tend to be able to know what, who you're going to meet, uh, who they are almost immediately if you are open to your intuition. And so uh, this had some powerful uh influences on how I approach things but this is this is what I want to know what have you seen in that sense because there's this I've had a client uh who came to me and husband cheated on her roughly around five years in and she, her whole thing was I never saw it coming I never saw it coming and I have this thing I call uh uh in my in my sessions where I peel layers and so I take time I don't go you know I, if it takes me a year I'm, I'm getting to the, and I need you to trust me. So I'm not ripping into you. I'm slowly allowing you to tell me who you are. And, and in that, she's telling me, we're going back, you know, hey, what happened here? We, oh, we had this dart and we had this and we're going backwards. And I'm, we had this and we did this and we did this. And like, and she, but she would always come back, but I never saw it coming. I said, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay that you didn't see it coming. We get back to the day they met. And I said, so tell me, what was it like the day you met him? 
So when I first saw him, I didn't like him. But when I first saw him, I didn't like him. But what was it? What was the but? He was very professional. He was very courteous. He he presented well. You could tell that he he earned a nice living and all that. So you immediately ignored this thing that just came you when you first met him. So you didn't know anything about him and you didn't like him. That that should have been something, but we have been trained to completely ignore that. And so, I mean, as for as much as you can, like, where do you where do you sit on that? How do you see that? Well. One of the things all of my books are about, particularly Mo One, but really all of my books are about, I'm a reference a comedy bit from Chris Rock. Chris Rock had a, a bit years ago uh, where he said that most men and women are not their real authentic selves for the first at minimum for the first three dates. He <laughs> said his term was, he said, you send your most polite and impressive representative mm -hmm. on the first three dates. And then maybe beginning with the fourth date, you slowly but surely begin to reveal your true self. And I always argue that the worst thing a man or a woman can do entering into a relationship is pretend to be somebody that, that they know they're not. A lot of guys mm -hmm. try to be more gentlemanly, more polite, more sexually conservative. Basically, they try to avoid revealing any side of themselves that they think has the potential to turn the woman off. And the same with women. And I always say that's a bad thing. I, I think from literally your first interaction with a person, the person that you see possibly as a long-term companion, you need to be real. Even if that reveals some chinks in your armor, some, some qualities or attributes that some people might consider undesirable or unappealing, you need to be your, like me and my wife, for example, I, I can say that about my wife and I, we were real and authentic with each other from the get-go. There wasn't no me, as Chris Rogers would say, sending my representative. I was just really bold, real, and authentic with her from like the first, actually my wife came to me because I usually have men as clients, but sometimes I work with women and couples and Actually, how me and my wife met, she came to me as a dating coach and client. And so our first few conversations were more as dating coach to client. And then she ended up revealing to me that she had an attraction to me. And she wanted to connect with me romantically. And then you, you could say things took off from there. But yeah, people have to be make a commitment to being real. But so many people, we live in what I would generally call just a politically correct climate. Now, going specifically to Facebook, Dr. Wilder, I'll tell you somebody who's just totally against being politically correct, and that's your colleague on this panel right here. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Blanchard used to have some posts on Facebook that would have the news like, man, did he really just say that? <laughs> and, uh, I did particularly anything to do with the urban community and where we're going as a community. Dr. Blanchard does not mince words, and I'm sure you don't either, uh, Dr. Wallace. But yeah, a lot of people try to be politically correct and try to be the, the nice guy and the well-liked guy. You know, we're obsessed these days because of social media with likes. And no, and that's what's messing up not only a lot of romantic relationships, but just relationships either between men and men, women and women, right, family. Right, right, right. Everybody wants to be liked and, and say the likable thing. No. Right. 
And 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 I agree with that 100%. And yeah, I, uh, one thing that I think that makes uh, the relationship I have with Dr. Blanchard work is that we respect that about one another. Like, uh, I'm a unapologetically who I am. I, I don't speak. And, and uh, I was talking about this earlier. People was talking about, well, man, with the stuff that you guys have on that channel, why don't you have more subscribership? I say it's because I don't cater. Uh, I'm not here for likes. I'm not here for the performance perspective. Now, obviously, if we ever get it going and it starts to be a big revenue generator, great. But I'm here because I think I have something to offer. So there are going to be times that the women are going to be like, yes, yes, yes. And then it's going to be times they're going to be like, did he just say that? Because I'm not here to cater. And see, that's the thing. We talk about a certain person and we're not going to mention that person's name, but we we, we talk about certain and, and see, that's it. When you take a blueprint, the first thing I saw when I started researching you and I saw, uh, you know, a couple of other press releases that were kind of promoting your books. And I was looking at how you were outlining stuff when you were explaining it. And I said, OK, a person who has a sense of PR, who has a sense of knowing how to promote and understands target audiences and all that can find their target audience and men in this cater to that and blow up. Because there's a especially somebody on the radicalized side, like the person, uh, the black pill guy. He is at a place right now. Anything you can say about women right now that doesn't come across as being catering to women or uh, being polite, that's really calling it how he sees it needs to be called. He's on it because he's been feeling it for so long. It's he, he can relate to it. So if I'm that person, I could come out and say, I'm just going to dig in right here. This is going to be my niche. This is where I'm going to come and I'm going to do this and I'm going to mix truth into it. But my whole goal is to create a following. And that's my concern. And that's what Dr. Blanchard and I were talking about is someone like you who literally has put years and years and years. I mean, you first came across this and then you you went through a processes of even when people were telling you, man, you're on a gold mine. You you still moving through it until you realize you had something to offer the world. And I, I think there's a positive element to this. And then there's still going to be people who hear it because it's not in that traditional sense of guys do every, you know, the guy throwing his coat over the puddle. Mm -hmm. or, you know, it, that's, you know, it's not there. It's like, hey, this is what happens in real life. In real life, this is what happens. You know, and there are women, just like you want to talk about all the dog men out there, there's some women out there that will take you quick, run game on you, have your head spinning, and your bank account empty, and you're not, man, what, what's her name right now? Brittany what? Brittany Brenner? Mm -hmm. Dude's still trying to figure out what happened yeah, to him. Yeah. And she was on that grind long before that. She was trying to get Cap. Uh, it was somebody else before Cap that she was trying to get at. And eventually she figured, okay, I'm going to have to get somebody a little younger, a little more naive. Mm -hmm. yeah, I see, this brings up one of my points I made, first made in Mo One and a couple of my subsequent books. There's a lot of guys in society to this day who, number one, will use this term, well, both men and women use the term running game on a member of the opposite sex. Again, to reiterate, I'm all about being upfront and, and, and straightforward with women about my desires, interests, and intentions. But the main faction of guys I get pushback from is guys that basically try to make the argument that, no, Alan, 
I'm sorry, but you got to be dishonest to some degree. You got to be disingenuous with women to some degree. Basically, you got to run game on women to be successful. And my argument is no. See, here's what you guys don't realize. There's a lot of highly manipulative women in society that want you to try to run game on them. Why? Because they're going to run game on you back better. <laughs> The, the quickest, the easiest person to con is who? A con artist. Yep. You just gotta, you, you just, you just gotta have your game on another level. And the, the whole thing is that, that 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 comes that idea of I'm gonna come out, I'm gonna get something, and I'm gonna do it in a non a, a disingenuous way. And that that that's the key. That is what I really settled into when I watched it. It's like, hey, if this is who I am, this is who I am. No, that's that might be that person that's just upset. No, I'm good. And you that's okay because I'm not gonna have everybody. But there's there's a group of people who will feel me right where I'm at that I can sink myself into and have as much fun as I want to, or be as serious as I want to, or find my wife if I want to. Mm -hmm. But what I can't do is go in presenting something I'm not, because now what I'm creating is an energy that most people don't want to talk about. Cause when we talk about psychology, we want to get real scientific and we miss the fact that in the, the idea of thoughts and behavior, it's also an emission of energy. Energy is always present and energy creates problems when you are not on the same level and you're trying to act. So you're going to go in and there's this woman, she's on a 500, 500, 600 Hertz level. She's good on our energy, but you, the very fact that you want to be deceptive puts you at about a 200 or 250 hertz a scale. Now, the only way you can even get to her is to forcefully move in through your deception. You immediately drag her down when you start playing your game and you you consistently drag her down as long as she allows you to stay. Now, the problem is, will she ever get back up to 550 where she's ready and she's ready to receive somebody who's really going to treat her the way she wants to be treated? Or will you pulling her down, keep her down there? Now she becomes that chick that's out there to get whatever because you, you she feels like she got got. Same thing with men. It's a bunch of men out there that don't have good views of women because when they tried to do right, they got took quick. Mm -hmm. And now they like, you know, forget it. So to a lot of people, it's a game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and the best man, best woman win. Yeah, what you guys... Yeah, what you guys are describing to me is what I said earlier, Doc, uh, when we talked about this show on another day. We have a gender war going on between oh, yeah. black men and black women. And real neither, quick, neither, neither sides, oh, neither side wants to listen to the other. But go ahead, go ahead, Alan. No, I was just going to quickly go say ahead, Alan. that term you just used. Again, I keep mentioning this collection of men sites that they commonly refer to as either the worldwide manosphere, which is a bunch of races, then there's more specifically what's known as the black manosphere. It's real prevalent right here on, on YouTube. And um, But yeah, that's a commonly used phrase you just used. It's the gender war. Guys, men and black women and black women say, we're engaged in a gender war. I just want to point that out. And and so uh, to yeah, to I piggyback mean, the off of it, you look at our 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 kids are. Oh, I was just getting ready to say, Doc. As evidence of that, you can look at only thirty percent of our kids are growing up in a a, a a traditional household with a man and a woman. Thirty percent. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
and 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 that's generous because uh, some 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 studies have it as low as twenty five. Yeah, and, and and so what that means is yeah, that's not a balance, and and what we're missing is uh, we we get the idea because we've commodified these roles. Black men have been highly commodified. In other words, a great deal of how they're, we are perceived in this world, not just by black women, but period, is about how big our bank accounts are, how, how much we can present. The people who are looked up to and respected are the people with the big bank accounts. It doesn't matter what type of character you have. It doesn't matter whether you're being a good father or not. It doesn't matter whether you know how to move and operate and you're helping other people. It's just like, think about the people we pay homage to. It's the people with the billionaire sign behind their name or the multimillionaire sign behind their name. And it doesn't require great character. It just requires that you have. So now I'm commodified. So what I've learned is as a man, I'm speaking in general. What I've learned as a man is I don't have to necessarily be good if I got paper. Well, I don't want to pick on this fraternity, brother. I'm not even going to mention his name again, even though I did mention it earlier in this conversation. But see, that's one of the handful of issues I have with this particular fraternity brother of mine. What he's mainly known for, probably more than anything else, is his emphasis on the phrase being a high-value man. And most of it has to do with a man's level of career success and financial success. And I've always presented the kind of argument, oh, so you're saying that a guy can have totally shady moral character and integrity, but if he making $200,000, that's the man women should pursue. And I, I don't agree with that. But there's a lot of his followers right. that do believe basically, he calls it the bag. He, a man has to have the bag and if he doesn't have the bag, basically he's not worthy of a quality wife. I, I disagree with that. That's the, th that's a big point. And that is huge in, 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 in the, in the, uh, what I took ex exception to in listening to it is number one is first and foremost, is there are a lot of people who celebrate the 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 uh, abrasiveness of his delivery when addressing women and my point has always been i can tell the same truth to the same woman and do it in a way where she respects me and where she takes the advice i'm giving her and goes out i told you the same thing but i did it in a way that was respectful and i don't have to be harsh in order to prove my manhood. I, I don't have to be harsh to sit up and get a point across. It allows me to be a great husband and a great father because I can sit up and talk to my wife and my kids without raising my voice, without being derogatory, without tearing her down or without tearing them down and say, hey, this is what needs to be done. This isn't the way it's supposed to be done. This is what's going on. This is what I see. But my goal is to lift you and edify you more than it is to take advantage of where you're at. But when you start talking about high value man and your emphasis is on the money, what you do is, and what people don't get is, you can sit up there and do do this all you want to. You can be that bantam rooster, and you can cluck all you want to. But my statistics tell me that the type of guy that he's talking about is probably about 5% of the black male population. So all these guys out here that are get, being gassed up don't even qualify. Okay. So you don't qualify. You got him gassing you up, but you don't qualify. The median income for black men is $42,000. That's a long way from two hundred. Mm -hmm. So, OK, how are you measuring up when you yourself are allowing yourself to be categorized and valued in such a small way? What about how well you work with your children? What about how your children respect you? I, 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 I said this a long time ago and Doc, I tell you, 
I've always said that you can you can discern the character of a man by the confidence of his woman and the respect of his children. Now, now, and he doesn't have to have a six-figure income. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a six-figure income. I would love to see all of us striving to be better providers across the board. But to me, provision is more than money. Mm-hmm. I need to provide a safe space for my family. I need to provide encouragement for my family. I need to provide a place where my family can feel they can grow. I need to be providing wisdom. I need to provide leadership. I need to provide all those things so that when my family knows, is my as long as my daddy, as long as my husband is in this place, we we we're gonna figure this out. That is what we need in men. The the and here's the other thing, and then I'll be done. Here's the other thing. If you really have a man who has his head on right and wants the best for himself, even if he can't be a sole provider now, there's a desire inside of him too. It's just naturally there. He wants to be that man, especially in, a, in an era where he's been commodified. He wants to be that man. So if the right woman comes along and she knows how to plug into him, and she knows how to talk to him. She knows how to be alongside of him. She knows how to open up her spiritual womb. He will be. He will become a six-figure dude or better. He will become a provider because he has a desire to do so. And if she comes in and she's not sucking things out of him, he'll become that. So it's not always what he is now. It's what his potential is and how you fit into it. And if everybody's being honest with everybody to your main and primary point, Everybody knows where they're starting at. Everybody knows where they're going. The problem is you got a bunch of people pretending to be something they're not and then lying about where they're going. Then both people setting expectations that are unrealistic because nobody is who they said they were. And then eventually getting to the point where those expectations can't be met. And here we go. We're down at divorce court. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yep. So... so so, Alan, where do you see yourself going in the future, man? You had a lot of success with, with Mode One and some of your other books. Are you retired now, or what do you have in the works? What are you? What, what, what's in the future for you, man? Are you going to make a comeback? Because no, it's no, real no, right uh, now. No, I'm, no, I'm definitely not retired. Matter of fact, I, it's funny on my YouTube channel, I just recently did a video. Because, see, remember I was talking about some of these basically what I call ARC copycats. They want me to retire, essentially, so they can steal my talking points. That's the biggest problem I've had, specifically since I've been on YouTube. Like, I did a show on Blog Talk Radio for nine years. I never really ran into that problem. Um, But since I I can't, uh, I started doing YouTube videos in 2017. And again, I had all these younger dating coaches just try to steal my, anyway, without getting a long story, long digression. They want me to retire. I said, no, I'm not going to retire. Um, I'm going to do the dating coaching thing as long as I have clients who are interested in my unique form of advice. I'm definitely going to continue to market my books, you know, from now to the day I die. Um, actually, I would say the biggest thing I want to accomplish that I have yet to accomplish that would kind of uh, merge my two career interests, because initially, again, I was interested in the entertainment industry. I want a movie and or a Netflix series that's based on one or more of my books. I've been in conversation with some of my Hollywood connections about making that happening happen. So um, I would like to see that happen. 
Now, like one person, I admit I had some degree of, of envy of was Issa Rae. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She had she yeah. used to have a yeah. web series called "The Frustrations of a Socially Awkward Black Woman," and she gained such a following from that. HBO invited her to turn into a series called Insecure. Right. And, you know, she had a successful, I think, five-season run with that. And so she covered a lot of things specific. Now, I will admit, I don't really usually cover, depending on who I'm talking to, just uh, black men versus black women issues. I kind of cover, like, I have dating coaching clients of all races and ethnicities in almost every major country of the world. But um, yeah, I would like to see a series based on, you know, one or more months. So that's probably the biggest thing on my bucket list, so to speak, that I would like to see happen in my career. Uh, other than that, just continue to do some uh, speaking engagements. I've done some international speaking engagements in my career, um, workshops here in the United States and most of the major cities. And yeah, I, I don't know if I have any plans on writing another book um, in the very near future anyway. Um, I already have my five books out and I'm just continuing to market those. Cool. Uh, there is one question that uh, someone asked. It's one of our uh, law subscribers uh, and viewers. And she said, uh, Arthur Allen, have you thought about starting a book club for young youth, particularly black boys? No, I can't say. Well, I've had that mentioned to me at least once or twice before. But uh, no, as of to date, I have not. But I will seriously marinate on that. Uh, now that I have a son, I have an 18-month uh, son. And definitely as he gets older, I want to, you know, uh, transfer a lot of my knowledge, wisdom, insight to him. But uh, that's a great suggestion from your uh, your viewer. Great, great. Um, Doc, hey, you got some more question, man. You, mm -hmm. you go ahead, go ahead, Doc. No, I was about to ask yeah, you if I you had a question. Ask Alan, uh, you married late, am I right? Yeah, yeah I, mar you I married late, the first right? time at the age of 58 years. Again, I got married, uh, no, I was 57. Uh, I got married in July of 2020, and that was actually my first. Proposal, wedding proposal, uh, my first uh, marriage. And this is, believe it or not, and it, on a side note, I was at my 20-year high school reunion. And some of my female classmates was asking me, was I married and did I have children? And I said, neither one. Marriage, they weren't totally blown away, but they were mildly <laughs> surprised. But the children, they were like, what? As much as you like? expletive you don't have any i said well actually in full disclosure and i've admitted this before on my youtube channel so i don't mind admitting here i had a college sweetheart that i think i don't know if dot blanche you if you're familiar but i made a woman no i just do. under three I, years I at about. iu now i did i got yeah, her I pregnant but she was scared of dropping out of school along with a couple other things, so she chose to have an abortion. I didn't encourage her to do that, but I, at the same time, I didn't necessarily discourage her at the time. So if that child would have been born, I would have had a child way back in my college years. But after I left college, 
I never, despite a large degree of womanizing ideas, I never ended up having a child out of wedlock. And so this son I have now is my first child and first son ever. And being a husband and a father is a very rewarding experience. I was a late bloomer in this category, but it's, it's been a very rewarding experience. What's your son's name? His son, my son's name is Caden. Caden Walker Curry. All right. All right. So you I, went to Belt. You went to Roosevelt, Gary Roosevelt? No, I went to uh, Work High School. It's now, right. sadly, it's closed. It's one of the Gary schools that closed. Uh, so, yeah, my alma mater is closed now. But, yeah, I went to WIRT, Work High School. And, uh, and, 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 and Nuke, you, you went to the same high school as my cousin Ethel, right? LaSalle? Or yeah, no? South Bend LaSalle, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did. Went to LaSalle, yeah. We ran, he and I ran track together, yeah. Oh, yeah, you guys had a good track team. Matter of fact, Flea, our front brother, uh, Lamont Jackson, was on that track team, and uh, yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, man. Well, hey, man, thanks for, thanks for coming on today, man. And, uh, Doc, if you want to close it out, uh, sure thing, man. Uh, first of all, it has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Um, it fulfilled all of my expectations. I wish we would have had a little more time, but hopefully we can get you back to talk about what you're doing in the sense of getting that uh, film thing going as far as chronicling something uh, out, of, out of the book. I think that I think that should be a thing. And that's something that ultimately I'm, I'm going to pursue as well is the, the video documentary of some of the things that I've been able to put in writing. So I encourage that. Uh, there's information uh, about, uh, you know, Alan in the description box of the video, wherever it's streaming at. Uh, definitely go check him out. Definitely look into those books. If you're looking to understand things from, I think, a well thought out perspective uh, that's balanced. Uh, I think there are some points that we didn't get to touch on here like uh, the importance of how men view feminism and their relationship with feminism and how that plays out in the dating pool and their philosophies towards women. That's extremely huge. Uh, again, it was so much to do. I knew we weren't going to get to it because you're talking about something that this is a, a, a person's life work. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we tend to narrow it down because, again, we got so many people out there. Uh, I remember... Tony Robbins, you know, which kind of goes off into an area that I deal in. I remember Tony Robbins, like he has this unbelievable uh, disdain for the term life coach, which he coined mm -hmm. uh, because all of a sudden he, when he was working with Bill Clinton, someone asked him how he saw himself in that relationship and working with Bill Clinton. He said somewhat like a life coach and it took off. And then next thing you know, everybody's becoming a life coach. He's like, you know, hey. He didn't want to be in that situation. So I see where you're coming from. You've put the work in and now people are eating out of your plate. I use that phrase on a recent video. That's what I've yeah. to a lot of my copycats and plagiarists. I said, you guys, by <laughs> copying my talking points, my terminology, anything that's unique to me by copying it, I said, you guys are eating off my plate. Exactly what's happening. So I definitely respect that. And so, like I said, man, if there's anything I can do, uh, to help, you know, uh, let Doc know we connect. And I'm pretty sure Doc will be pulling you into his little recruiting process because he done, he, done, he done brought in every other uh, capital that he done had on the show uh, trying to pull me in there. 
So I'm pretty sure y'all, he, he'll pull you into the strategy eventually. But uh, hey, we're gonna note, have to put him on. Hey, we're gonna have to put him online, AC. Yes, y'all get tired of me about two two days in. About two days in, they say, Never mind, forget it, dude. Going back, but uh, on that note, look, we're gonna get off here. Thank you for to everybody for allowing, allowing us to invade your Saturday mornings. We always appreciate that. I'm pretty sure so many other things you guys could have did for an hour. Uh, on Saturday morning, but you decided to stop in. I hope that we were able to share some things with you that was informative and empowering. Again, check out the work of Alan Roger Curry. I was extremely impressed in doing my homework. And so uh, I'll be continuing to read. I'll be grabbing books. Uh, they'll end up on my reference sheets on something I write in the future, because I think that uh, you, you have some extremely valid points. On that note, we're going to get out of here. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend and we'll see you soon.